Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Frequent guest Alon Colette is back with us again today. Alon is an institutional portfolio manager on Fidelity's global asset allocation team, who manage several funds for Canadian investors, including the Fidelity Managed Portfolio suite of funds. We caught up with Alon the week after the U.S. Federal Reserve's Jackson Hole Economic Symposium, and Alon looks at key takeaways and unpacks what this has meant for the U.S. equity markets and what may be next for inflation, rates, and possible recession. A few findings mentioned today include hiring may slow and unemployment drifting higher in the U.S., services prices being largely determined by the labor market and wage growth, and the Fidelity Managed Portfolios continuing to hold Treasury inflation-protected securities, TIPS, as inflation protection. This podcast was recorded on July 29th, 2022. And one quick announcement before we get started. If you're looking for more market insights, mark Thursday, September 8th on your calendar. Fidelity's Vivian Sue, Director of Product Innovation, is hosting a Reddit Ask Me Anything event from noon until 2.30 p.m. Eastern. All are welcome to stop by and ask their questions about markets and investing. So please head to reddit.com slash r slash Fidelity Canada to participate. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Great to see you, Elon. I bet you did some reading this weekend. I did. Nice to see you, Pamela. Yeah, nothing like spending a late late August weekend catching up on Jackson Hole. Your first thoughts. I just want to, you know, from your perspective, somebody reads about inflation, all the time. What did this mean to you, this this symposium? This symposium is very, very academic, except for Chair Powell's speech. His speech, which is, I think, the most important thing for us to discuss today uh, in terms of how it affects positioning and our thinking, was very, very short, right? Our discussion today, Pamela, is probably going to be four or five times longer than, than Chair Powell's entire speech. You know, it was a very, very short speech. It was forceful. It was direct. It was only about inflation. It didn't really reference um, a lot of research, but you know, he, he communicated, I think, as clearly and as sternly as possible, economic pain and higher rates are required to bring inflation lower, and we should abandon any thought of you know, potential rate cuts in the near term. And so I think you know, we're, we're seeing the fallout of that, certainly, since the speech. But it was a very, very direct and effective speech, in my view. And now I think, uh, you know, the path forward is, is, is fairly clear. So the path forward is fairly clear. What I'm curious, and we're going to get into mostly his speech, as you mentioned, but it's an academic symposium. What, what were the other parts of this symposium? What, what were the discussions? I know there are a lot of big names there. What, what was that like? Yeah, so I mean, this historically, the Jackson Hole Symposium has been a research-focused conference, and the the program this year really, again, it brought together sort of the all stars of of monetary policy research from from around the world, 
and central bank governors from from overseas. And a lot of the analysis was on, you know, what are the lingering effects from this type of uh, from this type of shock that we've observed. You know, a lot of it was like, for example, there was a session on what's the best way to gauge, you know, labor market healing. Um, and so there was some interesting stuff. Again, like, you know, for a nerd like me, there was some interesting stuff to to read and catch up on in terms of, you know, it's not just good enough to to examine one unemployment rate. You need to look at labor market participation and engagement, which is something, Pamela, we've discussed um, in the past, you know, but really for the focus of 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 the investment community that's that's joined us today, I think it's absolutely critical what Chair Powell said. And again, I mean, if you want the message to come across forcefully, I think they they succeeded in doing that. And one way they succeeded in doing that is being very, I don't want to say abrupt, but quite terse in in the communication. And you know that that almost helps to make it feel direct, right? When it's a very, very focused conversation that's short and sharp. So let's talk about the word pain, because it was included in there for a reason. It was included in there for people to understand that when all eyes are on inflation, there will be some pain inflicted. Let's dig into that a little bit. I think we mostly know what that means. The cost of capital goes up and that disrupts areas like the housing market, like our ability to spend on other things. So what did Chair Powell say specifically? Chair Powell said, while higher interest rates Lower growth and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation. They will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation, but a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. So what does that mean? What does that really mean? You know, and this is something, again, I heard at a conference I attended in May where I had a chance to sit next to John Williams, the head of the New York Fed. And, and, and where he discussed some of these topics. Pain for households and businesses. For households, what that really means is the labor market is likely to soften, right? So the labor market right now is excessively tight. The excessively I mean, tight- Sorry to interrupt you, but on Friday, the expectation is for 300,000 jobs in the US to have been created. Well, exactly. And so there are, I mean, there are lags to decisions in monetary policy. And, you know, you would expect to see you would expect to see a slowing in in the pace of hiring, but you know, um, in terms of the pain to households, it it isn't it, it's in the form of a few things. One, I would expect hiring to slow, and perhaps for the unemployment rate to actually drift higher, or perhaps not drift any lower. You know, and, and early indications from, for example, weekly initial unemployment insurance claims already suggest that's happening. But the other way to think about you know pain to households is. Through the, through the housing market and through consumer spending, right? So different parts of the economy have different sensitive sensitivities to interest rates, right? Generally, the most sensitive parts of the economy to interest rates are the housing market and discretionary consumer spending. Um, and so let's think about this for a second. So the housing market, if you, you know, when, when the Fed is in a, Fed or the Bank of Canada is in a rate cutting environment, the first sort of uh, switch to flick is the housing market, right? So it, I mean, you normally have, you know, prospective home buyers on the sidelines waiting for some sort of relief in, in rates. And when, when monetary policy authorities are, are dropping rates or, or cutting rates, 
That's a very cyclically sensitive, rate sensitive part of the economy, just like uh, consumer spending is, right? So you can imagine the same thing for large durable assets, right? If you want, if you need to borrow money for a, a washer or a dryer or a car, that's very, very rate sensitive. And now let's just flip that on its head, right? So with rates moving higher, I would expect principal homeowners, they'll manage their, their expenditures and their income such that they always make that principal home principal mortgage payment or rental payment. But, you know, the frothier parts of, of the housing market, um, the more speculative elements, those will co certainly come under pressure. And for anyone living in Toronto or Vancouver, we're already seeing it. Yeah. And then also for discretionary consumer spending, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's maybe a one fewer trip to Canada's wonderland in the summer than, than, you, than you've done in the, in the prior years. But, you know, might be a hard sell on my kids, but but you know these are these are the sort of discre discretionary cuts that you have to make. That's on the household side. So so the idea. Let's okay. So let's just go into the services goods discussion that you and I have had. And again, this was a big change. It was part of the reopening story. Going back to services, we've seen the lineups in airports and all the bags that are not being taken and so on, and every other type of service job that has. I think you've told us has has come back. It has recovered. It has reopened and recovered. Now it will be hit, presumably. Yeah. So this is. I mean, this is going to be very interesting. So what did we see? This is a multifaceted discussion. So it'll just take me a few seconds to set it up. What did we see during the pandemic? We saw consumers who were shut in their house and unable to purchase services, meaning restaurant meals and vacations and travel, kind of switch their discretionary uh, spending towards goods, right? So we've sort of joked that, you know, every single Peloton and air fryer has been purchased and uh, those are good compliments probably, but you know, it, it, all of those have been purchased and goods prices shot much higher than, you know, their trend growth line and services came under tremendous pressure. And similarly, I mean, the, the labor market, the parts of the labor market that were really hammered and hurt the most were services jobs, right? Because there was, it was just an evaporation of, of of customers and clients. But services have now, services spending has now fully recovered the, the lost uh, output, at least in the U.S., and is now back to normal. And I mean, that's that exactly speaks to that anecdote of um, of long lines at airports or, you know, bad service in restaurants and stuff like that. And that's a meaningful, you know, dislocation to the economy. What that has meant for prices so that, that's the real activity. What that has meant for prices is services prices have pushed higher, right? So in when we measure inflation, I mean, we often talk about CPI or the consumer price index, which includes all sorts of items that households purchase. But the more important part of measuring long-term sustained inflation is core inflation, which generally excludes food and energy. And 75% of that underlying core pie are services prices. And services prices are determined by the labor market and wage growth. And those are very slow moving. And that's why I think, and I'm sure we'll get to this, that's why I think it's very preemptive for us to raise the mission accomplished banner on inflation. Because while the year ago comparisons have rolled off and perhaps we've begun the slow and steady decline back to a norm, more normal environment. I mean, in stubbornly high inflation for a long period of time can be just as damaging as an elevated as an elevated one time one month number. In fact, it can be more damaging. 
Um, and and that that's affected our positioning as well. Okay. All right. Well, so let, let's get into that. So what's been accomplished is services are back in terms of their levels, but what is also slowly being accomplished is they're going further. And and this is has to do with the the labor, the wage story. So. So how has that particularly affected your positioning, actually? I mean, that has to do with the stickier, longer inflation, essentially, sticking around. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's important for us to remember monetary policy authorities, the Fed, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the ECB, they're not just looking at one number on anything. They're not just looking at one number on, on the labor market. They're not just looking at one number on inflation. The favorite. I mean, that's what I keep hearing. So that's- Exactly. That's true. But- and oftentimes we think in, you know, comparisons to 12 months ago. But again, they're looking at comparisons to 12 months ago, six months ago, three months ago, one month ago. I mean, there's a really there's just an enormous amount of ways to slice slice this data. And when I look at the details of the data and I still look at all 354 lines of PCE data when it comes out every month, like I did when I was a researcher, it's really clear to us that the services component has pushed higher and is going to remain sort of stubbornly high. And the reason for that is, and we've talked about this in the past, the single most important determinant into the price of a service is the wage that you pay the person doing the service, right? So if you go to the mechanic, it's not the part that that gets imported that's expensive, it's the person's time. And, and you know, looking at things like US trimmed mean PCE price index, which trims off uh, parts of that, that price index, I mean, that's a straight line higher and is sitting at almost four and a half percent, right? So that's a lot lower than than the normal PCE price index, but it still points to a very, very elevated sort of stubbornly high inflation environment. And, and to answer your question, Pamela, on how that affects our positioning, we still own asset classes that and have overweights to asset classes that protect against unexpected changes to the rate of inflation or elevated inflation. And those are things like oil and gold, right? So really, no matter how you slice inflation, oftentimes the asset classes that do the best job of protecting against elevated inflation rhyme with commodities. They're either you know, commodity producers or the underlying physical commodity or companies or countries that have high exposure or beta, betas to commodities. And then on the right-hand side of this, you'll see we're looking at the global balance fund this is these are tips, fixed income instruments that specifically by construction protect against inflation. And again, I mean, the, the, the size of these overweights may change. And in fact, for the inflation protection uh, protected bonds, we've trimmed that slightly. But we still have a very high conviction view on the damaging effects of inflation. And for that reason, we have overweights to these asset classes. In fact, you know, in hindsight, we would have even had larger overweights to these assets that protect against inflation. Is it too late to um, put further, put further, put that further to work to be more no. waste? No, not at all. No, it's um, th- these are the fund that we were just looking at is a very agile and tactical fund. So we can and do frequently discuss the output and and uh, what we're seeing from our process, right? From our researchers, from the bottom up stock pickers or credit analysts. And we do tweak the overweights and underweights as we see fit. And sometimes, Pamela, that question comes up in the context of that inflation focus fund that we launched at the end of September of last year. While the headline sticker shock number, we may not 
you know, we may not surpass that again. We are not just sliding back down to the 2% that we we knew and loved for the previous 20 or 25 years. And, and that still uh, implies inflation and the damaging effects of inflation, which are particularly damaging for multi-asset class portfolios, is something we want to protect against. So I, I want to ask you, it's so basic, and I, I think everyone knows the answer to it, but I sort of want to hear how you take us through it. Are we late cycle? There's a few answers here, and I, I, I don't want to sound like an economist, so I, I'll, I'll try not to provide every possible answer here. But uh, We're not an economist. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Uh, so exactly. Good point. Uh, although that's the, that's the historical training. You know, we work very closely with our research team, our asset allocation research team based in Boston. That's the team I used to sit on. And the woman who sat next to me was actually an expert in uh, running models and developing models that discuss or decide what stage of the business cycle various countries across the world are in. Right. So you probably folks on this call have probably seen, you know, a chart with dots representing where various countries are in terms of the business cycle. That research group has Canada and the U.S. in late cycle right now. But, you know, there's a diversity of opinions here, right? So you probably heard from colleagues on my team, uh, David Wolf or David Tulk, mentioned that it's not impossible that we are actually in a recession right now in Canada and or the U.S. Now, again, the way economic data and recessions work is, you know, they're going to tell us in six or 12 months, Oh, by the way, a year ago you were in a recession. Right. You know, it's it's always a little a little odd that way, but it's not impossible that once the dust settles on the data, we actually see. Look, there was a there was a mild recession that that happened in 2022. You know, in the second half of 2022, and it was again, it wasn't a 2008, and it wasn't a COVID recession, but it was the type of type of of pullback that we haven't seen in some time, but is much more normal than an 08 or a COVID recession. It's a pullback in consumer spending, a pullback in housing activity, and retailers running off their inventories, right? So we shouldn't anchor to 2008, which was a one in 100 year type of event, or COVID, which was sort of, I heard Bernanke, uh, former chair Ben Bernanke describe it as a putting the economy in a medically induced coma, right? So those are those are very odd types of downturns. Will Canada have to raise rates to keep up with the U.S.? Are there implications for the currency? So one of the things that we highlighted in our last thought leadership paper, which I, I would recommend everyone to have a peek at um, and speak to their uh, their sales team about, about getting that, is the difference in between Canada and the U.S. in terms of monetary policy normalization. And there's a meaningful difference here. Normally, you know, monetary policy cycles in Canada and the U.S. are highly correlated and, and collinear. And again, in both in Canada and the U.S., we have very elevated inflation. We have a tight labor market and we have monetary policy normalization. But that's where the similarities end. I mean, the U.S. is a resilient, very dynamic, very resilient uh, economy with very flexible labor markets. And Canada just isn't that. Uh, in a very tight labor market, for example, you have people job jumping. Uh, very, very quickly, right? And and in a downturn, the adjustment, right? If the necessary adjustment in the economy is X million jobs have to go away, that happens quite quickly, right? It's not normally a prolonged process. But the real difference, the, again, the real difference for, in our thinking between Canada and the US right now is 
Aggressive monetary policy normalization in the face of elevated inflation is going to have very, very different knock-on effects in Canada versus the U.S. In the U.S., again, I think the U.S. can probably withstand the rate normalization. I mean, there will be some pain, as Chair Powell mentioned, but in our view, the pain is going to be magnified or amplified in Canada. And that's because of something we've, we've discussed several times, extraordinarily elevated debt levels, right? So an, a huge mountain of debt with very rapidly changing borrowing costs, right? And so that, that does present sort of a Canada-specific problem, whereas U.S. households repaired their balance sheets following the financial crisis you know, Canadian balance sheets just kept churning higher. And now we're in a uh, in a situation where, you know, the monthly carrying cost of those debt loads is is going to become quite a bit more painful. Let's go a little bit, if you don't mind, with the, with some of the time that we have left, Elon, to to sort of looking out to how for how long do rate rises have to have to go on for. So, I mean, we, we've had this sort of front loaded discussion discussion whether the September rate rise will will be another you know 75 basis what will it be how how much and so on but ultimately it's really a question it seems of when they can suddenly start cutting or that's what the market and the pivot discussion was trying to price in trying to figure out when that was all going to happen how different does the landscape to you look after Jerome Powell's speech on Friday yeah i i should be really really blunt here any potential rate cuts are likely a long ways off. A long way like January? Oh, no, further than that, in my view. Again, uh, we, we don't have, we don't specifically forecast, you know, meeting by meeting rate decisions. But let me set up why I think anyone sort of clinging to the rate cut raft is, is probably, you know, in for some trouble. What will govern the path of uh, monetary policy is in the path of inflation. And the broader damage and the depth of that damage on the greater macroeconomy. So right now, the macroeconomy looks like in the U.S. and in Canada, perhaps, it looks like it is basically digesting those rate hikes. And again, in my view, we're still in the normalization phase. We're not really even in the intentionally restrictive phase of the rate hiking cycle. Uh, and so we, you know, there's there's quite a bit more to do, I think, and what the Fed is going to need to see, and you know, we'll see this, we'll see this evolve in their language, and I'm sure we'll have discussions as that lang that language evolves, or I'd love to have discussions as that language evolves. Is, you know, you you won't really see it in the actual rate decisions, but you'll see the language change in between meetings, right? So imagine a, imagine a case where we get you know five more months of flowing monthly inflation prints with a slight drift higher in the unemployment rate, then you could imagine the the language from the Fed or the Bank of Canada begin to evolve in such a way that it doesn't sound as forceful or as aggressive as what was delivered by Chair Powell last week. I mean, it was that was a stern sort of talking to, uh, in my opinion, and that is exactly the right tone to take when it when inflation is very far from where it needs to be. But I mean, I want to just really ask you this question about belief. And, you know, you'll have to see all kinds of headlines about, you know, they have to, the, the central banks of the world have to get the trust back. And do we believe? And, well, there's a midterm election coming up in November. And so by then the Fed won't be able to do 
so tough. And I mean, go to that question of belief. Like he sounded pretty believable on Friday, but you know, that's, that's more for you to answer than me. I'm, I'm curious, like, should markets believe what he's saying? And will something like a midterm election throw him off course if he sees inflation? I mean, I would say quite the quite the opposite, right? So again, I, I jotted down one line from Chair Powell's speech where he says, quote, restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. So I don't know how much more clear he can be to say, you know, let's let's move away from this sort of delusionally optimistic view that we're suddenly going to get rate cuts or, or a pause in the rate hiking cycle if inflation has one more month that's in line with the Fed. I mean, that's just not convincing. We're far away from that. But again, these are views that are specifically expressed in the portfolios that we manage for Canadian investors. And I mean, that speaks to number one, why we continue to hold inflation protection. But two, you know, our, our general overweights and underweights are very, very muted. In fact, outside of, for example, inequities, outside of our commodities overweight, we're roughly neutral, you know, neutral equities to, to, our, to our strategic benchmark. So again, we're managing these portfolios for the long term, and we do take monetary policy and all policy very seriously, but that's why we have the, the muted bet sizes that we do in these portfolios. Absolutely fascinating to get your thoughts, Elon Collette. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through how the positioning works and ultimately how, how you interpret the remarks over the weekend. All the best. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.